Welcome to the Shiro Podcast, where we celebrate women in the legal profession and discuss some of the challenges and issues they face. This podcast is brought to you by the Texas Young Lawyers Association. Hey everyone, welcome to the Shiro Podcast, a project of the Texas Young Lawyers Association. My name is Rebecca Patterson Linehan. I'm the District 17 Director for TYLA and a Co-Chairman of the Diversity Committee, and I have with me today a very special guest. We have Lisa Tatum, a former State Bar President, current President and Managing Partner of the Tatum Law Firm. So thank you, Lisa, for being here. My pleasure. Um, So just kind of starting from the beginning, uh, you grew up in a military family. That's correct. We got to San Antonio, Texas by way of Randolph Air Force Base. There you go. And so how did growing up in that environment shape your upbringing or shape your career path? That's a good question. Um, being a military brat, if you will, is its own culture. So when you live in a city like San Antonio that is Military USA, there are two aspects to your culture. There's the city that you live in, and then there's the military life embedded within the city. Um, I think the benefits for how it has affected and impacted my life is that you are put in situations where you are living and going to school with students who are from all over the world. We actually adapt because you're moving every two or three years, at least back in the day when I was growing up. And so it was not unusual to get transplanted multiple times within every school. Uh, So you learn how to be by yourself, you learn how to make friends quickly, and you learn how to carry home in your heart. And so when you say that you meet um, people from all over the world and different backgrounds, how does that, I guess, exposure to diversity at such a young age, does that, do you think that that had a positive effect on your upbringing? Absolutely. It, to me, it does a couple of things. It eliminates fear because you're constantly learning new things. Mm-hmm. So you're no longer afraid to try that new food, go to that new place. Uh, The other thing that it does for you is it's really an encouragement of acceptance because now you're learning, oh, that's a different religion. Oh, they they do something different when they prepare their meals. They Mm -hmm. speak a different language. And so there is a warmth and a welcoming of things that are different and an embracing of a different experience as opposed to that fear that usually causes us to judge. So then from there you went to Smith College in Massachusetts originally, went to Santa Clara Law School in California, and then did you start as a prosecutor straight out of law school? I sure did. Okay. I sure did. How long were you with, is it the Bear County District Attorney's Office? Bear County DA's Office, that's correct. Um, I had the opportunity to intern in the summer before I decided whether or not I wanted to go to law school. So the guys that I had the pleasure of working with... um, Pat Hancock, who is a private practitioner, and Bert Richardson, who sits on the Court of Criminal Appeals, um, are two of the mentors that helped me actually make the decision on whether or not to go to law school. So it made sense after I graduated and made the decision to come back home, ultimately, uh, to make that application and start out where I was most familiar and knew that I could carry my litigation experience anywhere else I went. That's true. Um, And so then how did you make that decision to go to law school? What What was your vision going into law school of what you would do with that degree? I like the the word choice, vision. I had no idea. (laughs) Um, I actually tripped in, and I tell law students this all the time, with coming into orientation. I did not have that plan all my life if I'm going to be a lawyer. 
I had never really contemplated being a lawyer. I had never even articulated that I wanted to be a lawyer or go to law school until I was a junior in college. To tell you quickly, the short version, winter recess, home for the holiday. This is Texas after all, so what am I doing, watching football? Mm-hmm. You've been loafing around all day, what's wrong? I'm fine, nothing to worry about. No, really, honey, What? you seem kind of down. I was like, no, I'm fine. Mom kept egging me. And finally, out, out of nowhere, I literally burst into tears. I think I want to go to law school. <laughs> and she started to laugh at me, which made me cry a little bit more. And she says, why are you laughing? Because it's going to cost a lot of money and take a long time. That was my epiphany, that I wanted to go to law school. And so then, started the Bear County District Attorney's Office. How long were you there overall? About six and a half years. And what types of cases did you prosecute? Uh, I like to describe it as if it weren't stabbed, bleeding out, shot up, floating someplace, I probably didn't cover it. Uh, So my, my focus was on drugs and violent crimes. Was there anything about your time at the DA's office that particularly stands out or any particular turning points for you? Anything particularly memorable that you tried? Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, the unique thing about being a prosecutor is that our goal is to move towards justice. And there are all kinds of internal things that happen administratively in terms of if your office has a wall of shame or has something else that makes you worry about stats over over winning. Um, But I did have a case that did not sit well with me. And I pressed in with the detectives and made the decision that the wrong person was being charged with the murder. And I took a lot of heat, got a lot of pushback, um, kept leaning in, and at the end of the day, we did have the wrong person. It turned out it was the brother that had done it, not the one that had been charged. Um, At the end of the day, I felt vindicated. Um, The case didn't come to trial until after I'd left the DA's office, but they ended up with consecutive sentences for the crime for the right person. So I'd say that was really the the chance to say you learn your skills, you hone your skills, and then you, you really have to follow the evidence, no matter what other opinions may be. Do you think that the pushback that you got for wanting to pursue a different suspect, wanting to go down a different trail, do you think any of that pushback was because you were one of the newer attorneys in the office or because you were a female or or anything like that? I had been there for a while, so I think okay. it was less about my ability to try a case or to assess a case. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think it had a good deal to do with gender. Uh, the, the gentlemen that I was fighting with, the ones who did not want me to go down this path were both within the office and then, of course, the detectives who mm-hmm. are looking at it from their expertise. Um, but I had a benefit that the prosecutors get. And that is that in addition to the evidence, I had someone who was knocking on the door and was saying, you've got the wrong person, which led to a third body and a fourth body. And at the end of the day, we ended up discovering that the brother who had been incorrectly charged actually had mental deficiencies and had been manipulated. So the mother was one of the people who was pounding on the door saying, you've got the wrong you've got the wrong person. And ultimately, we learned that there were actually two other people in the vehicle. And that led to the right prosecution. Finding the right person. So how did your career as a prosecutor prepare you to enter private practice? I'm going to say again that no fear. And, okay. and it's less about the fear factor and more about the confidence level. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there is something about the courtroom being your workplace. There's something about just grabbing your stuff, going downstairs, and not knowing which of the 30 or 60 cases of the day are going to be the one you're going to try. Um, it gives you uh, a skill set to think through things quickly, um, to adjust and adapt more quickly. Um, I noticed going into private practice, I was obviously hired as a litigator gun on a litigation team, and I had never known that attorneys got sweaty hands and upset stomachs and got nervous about going to the courthouse because that's not what my experience was. Mm-hmm. And uh, speaking as a prosecutor, you do spend every day of the week in a courtroom in some form or fashion. You talk about gaining the confidence and the ability to adapt. Would you also say gaining skills that come with being in trial, knowing how to make an opening statement, knowing how to talk to witnesses, things that you do every single day as a prosecutor? Without a doubt. Um, litigation becomes your second heir. And at the end of the day, when you move out of the courthouse, everything that we do still applies to litigation. You're either trying to keep people out of litigation, you're trying to uh, anticipate litigation, you're trying to navigate through litigation. So by being in the DA's office and having to articulate, I always tell folks the most important thing that we do is communicate, whether it's in writing or whether it's oral or whether it is nonverbal. We do those things every single day and you're refining them because you hit those missteps. When it doesn't go right as a day-to-day litigator, you begin to realize what you need to do to read witnesses, to read judges, to anticipate the frowns and the nonverbals and how to get a perfect record. And then articulate those points in front of a 12-person jury that doesn't know anything about the law. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Teaching is a remarkable tool. And so when you originally left the Bear County DA's office, you went into a litigation Firm? I went into a small boutique firm, okay. actually, and uh, they specialized primarily in school law, but they had a litigation team, as most mid-sized firms would have. Mm-hmm. And so I started my pathway just on, here, take this case, go to court, here, take this case, go to court. Um, then they found out I was pretty good with people, and I started doing some general counsel work on top of that. So then I became part of that behind-the-scenes, day-to-day operations for governmental entities and private businesses. And then where did your uh, career take you from there? Uh, In about 2004, I got introduced to public finance by way of a managing partner who said, it's not rocket science, would you go help this guy over here? Well, okay, fine, I can do that. So I was working in public finance for about two years or so. just under two years. Um, But as you know, when we are in our practice areas, one of the things that we do is not just trudge along with our MCLE requirements, but usually take our CLE in the areas in which we practice so that we can keep our skills sharp. Um, So it was at that point that I was at a conference for the National Association of Bomb Lawyers that I met who was going to become my next boss. Okay. And who was that? Senator Royce West, who has a Dallas-based law firm and was looking for someone to start a San Antonio satellite office. Um, It was not something I was looking for, but the opportunity presented itself um, at a good time for me. I had been in discussion with my mentors, and I think mentors are very important, uh, extremely important for me in my life, and I was ready for a change. And so I'd actually been talking to them about whether or not I wanted to go out on my own, 
start a new firm, building a satellite office from zero sounded like a, a good transition for me. So I accepted that offer. And how did having the opportunity to set up that satellite office then prepare you for one day opening your own law practice? Oh, everything. Everything they don't teach you in law school. <laughs> so by now I knew how to try a case. I knew how to kind of handle and manage my clients. But now it's about building business from zero. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you transition? You know, can you, can you keep the clients? Do the clients move with you? Um, the politics, do you take the client? Do you wait and ask the client to sit tight because of the relationships that are built? Um, did you order pencils? What vendor account do you have? Does the phone system work? Did the server crash? You end up learning all the how-to when you start from nothing. Mm-hmm. And again, at that point, you know what you're capable of, whether it puts you in a fit of rage and kick the can in the corner or go into tears or white-knuckle moments of just fear. How am I going to do? Um, it's a wonderful opportunity to equip yourself with a safety net. So what advice would you give someone who wants to start their own practice? I would encourage someone to not just do it right out of law school. There's so many nuances to building your network, to building your reputation and your brand. When you have to build your brand at the same time that you're learning your practice, that's usually when you start having experiences that cause you to get counsel and mentors about practice management and the chief disciplinary counsel's office, which you only want to know them on how to avoid things and answer ethical questions, not be in ethical quandary, but not to be afraid to do it and to have a plan. Since we don't get taught these things in law school, if you weren't a business major, if you don't have a partner who's in business or marketing or have some other avenue, then you want to take an opportunity to either get classes or go with the small business development center and learn how to develop a business plan and start to strategize unless you just want to do your own thing and be able to, you know, watch soap operas during the day and sit on your floor and practice remotely, which some people do want to do. Mm -hmm. um, You want to know exactly how to build it. Then you started the Tatum Law Firm. Yes. Officially, it's LM Tatum PLLC, which is a mouthful when you answer the phone. Exactly. (laughs) Um, And when did you open June 1st of 2011. So just over seven years ago. That's right. Any regrets? Any? No regrets. We are now old enough. I say we because the entity itself is not my own personal identity. But seven years means you've got staying power. You know, and this is one of those things they don't teach you with business either. Is if you are looking for financing, certain contracts, viability is usually your magic three and five markers. Is it just you, or do you have other associate attorneys? How big is your firm? I have grown, and I have shrunk. So right now, there are two of us. I have one of counsel, who probably is going to retire pretty soon, because her husband retired, and the idea of cruises and fun is well-deserved. Enticing. (laughs) Um, Yes, indeed. Uh, I've been as large as five attorneys. I have usually had myself and an associate on board. Um, and then a legal assistant and other part-time support. I don't believe in bringing on people I can't keep, so most of them are of counsel or contract relationships. Um, But the largest was five attorneys, one legal assistant. Now I've got a legal assistant who has been incredible, has 
13 years of legal experience, 10 years of school district central office experience, so she can really move on the fly, um, and things have been working out pretty well. And do y'all have a specific practice area or multiple practice areas? Multiple practice areas. Uh, again, for me, a combination of keeping my mind sharp, not getting bored, and simple, basic revenue diversity. <laughs> Having buckets that have different time cycles to them. So... Um, the practice is heavily on outside counsel on a lot of employment and business law transactions because we are the Jane of all trades from board governance all the way to the contract negotiations and you know the Xerox copier won't work. What do we do? We can't get the contract and they want to charge us money all the way down to simple estate planning. We work with a lot of boards and so organically we began to start providing services to those board members who said, I know this might not be what you do, but I trust you. So now it is what we do. Um, and then public finance, which was that whole weird thing that I got asked to do back in 2004. Absolutely. Um, so coming from your background, and like you said, being introduced to diversity at such a young age, do you find that it's important that for you and your firm that you have that aspect of diversity? Yes. I actually don't have to do it as consciously as I thought I would, but I think that's because of my background. Mm -hmm. um, but to me, anything that you do, you want to be a reflection of the people that you serve. My family is very much involved in my practice. Uh, I'm an only. I love my parents. I want to keep them around as long as I possibly can, and this is a wonderful way since it absorbs so much of my time mm -hmm. that I kind of keep them involved. So mom is... Uh, retired English teacher, English major. So we have a built-in proofreader and administrative file clerk that's on hand part-time. Uh, my father's retired military and an administrator, so uh, he helps every once in a while with billing operations. So I kind of keep them hand-in-hand. Hand. So mm -hmm. right there, you know, you kind of got family as opposed to maybe a strategic diversity. Um, but as I've built, I've always looked for there to be a reflection. If the client can't find someone that they can relate with, connect with, and feel comfortable with, it makes it very difficult that's move away from the client need to the reality of just doing business. Not everybody's going to be appealed by me as an African-American woman um, for whatever reason. And so I know that there's certain marketplaces that are not going to be an easy entree for me, um, maybe a hard grapple and a, and a hard hold. But I know my brand, I know my reputation, I know my work. So given the opportunity, I usually am able to open that door, get in that door, and stay in that door until I decide it's of my choosing that I want to leave. Not always, but uh, many times that's the case. So having the diversity in-house, being willing to build on co-counsel and co-counsel relationships when I need them, um, it usually has a dual benefit. When you need that big dog in the room as a small firm, it doesn't hurt to be able to partner with a majority law firm who could use the benefit of a diverse mm -hmm. attorney for their same efforts. And then in 2013, 2014, you were elected as state bar president? Yeah. <laughs> Those moments in life that you don't really see coming and don't plan on. I've been in bar service for so long. I, I, I'm grateful and blessed to be able to say that I left the district attorney's office where life and things moved well and consistently to private practice. And at the time, I think it's different for you all now because here you are as a director with the state bar. 
Um, we weren't allowed at that time that if you were in government, you weren't allowed to be an active, involved participant in things like state bar activities. They felt that that would be an area where you could be influenced, and that was a challenge for everything that was going on. That's different now, but that was my entree. I went into private practice. I met a couple of people who were like, oh, my gosh, you need to get involved in bar work. So, well, okay. So I showed up at a meeting for a section, and the next thing I knew, I was vice chair of the section walking out of the meeting, wanted to spank that mentor, um, and the bar service had kind of continued. But I'd never put myself on a launch pad or a trajectory of, I want to be in leadership. So when the ask came, I... I'm pretty sure I got the ask twice. I, I refused. I, I was not interested. I, I had seen enough in my service to know what it meant to be a bar president. I knew what it meant to be the executive director. And I was like, y'all can have that. It's all good with me. But the third time the question came, my relationship with my God is such that uh, when it hits the third time, that's my two-by-four to the head. So the family kind of went into prayer about that and talked to friends and mentors all of whom, by the way, told me I was crazy, with the exception of a couple. Um, they're like, you're crazy. I can't believe you want to do that. That means you can't practice. You're not going to make any money. You can't do these things. And I yielded to the call because I figured, hey, I just started this practice. I'm already broke. I think I'm at the bottom. It can only get better from here, and I can do this service if I win. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how that started. How it not, not really a normal pathway, but that's what it was for me. What did it mean to you to be the first African-American to serve as state bar president? It was, it still is a surreal experience. Um, There are a lot of burdens to it. Unfortunately, that's one of the first things I thought of was, you know, darn it. Spotlight is on. Mm -hmm. Demand is here. Um, Everything that I do, I've been raised that you do it, you do it well, you leave your fingerprint on it, but you pave the way for the next person to come behind you Mm -hmm. and make it easier. So I think there were some self-imposed responsibilities that were not at all a part of the job description for the state bar president. Interesting. Um, I loved it. Um, It was hard work. It was very enjoyable. It remains enjoyable. This is the best seat of all past president. Um, But I'd never thought I'd have a calendar so full. I never thought I would go to certain places in the state of Texas um, or around the country that all were facilitated by being willing to serve. We've talked a little bit about diversity throughout, but why is it important for us to maintain diversity in our profession? When we talk about the things that we do in our daily lives, most of what we do is solve problems. And if that's a problem because you're looking to successfully prosecute someone or you are navigating the waters for a client, we as human beings don't live in a vacuum. In order to be effective, in order to be productive, we need to be around people. In order to advance and not stagnate, we need to be around people who think differently, who come from a different perspective, who are going to hopefully, challenge our thinking, push our envelope, and together push each other to make a better product for what we, what we do, which is serving. So how do we do that more strategically? How can we use a scalpel when we need to use a scalpel, a sledgehammer when we need to use a sledgehammer? Part of that is going to be about the fit of these different personalities and these different perspectives. I think that 
looking at the reality of what we do. We affect people's day-to-day lives, but in the affecting of day-to-day lives, we are constantly an echo of the deep roots of which this country was founded upon. Um, So now you're starting to talk about what it means to have an impact on the rule of law and what that means for decades beyond our years and what fingerprint we leave and what it is that we're being part of the construct and the structural design of literally humanity. We have been blessed, this is probably the military brat part of me, um, to be the greatest country in this world. And there are globally individuals who do nothing but look to the United States of America and to Americans to strive for what it is that they think that they can be, who they can become, and what they can make of their world. So as lawyers, we need to be responsible to our environment, what feeds us, whether it's the air that we breathe or the revenue that we generate, um, the communities in which we live, and then what it is that we expect and we want to hope to have for those to come. So we'd be looking at our children and that impact, but I think the biggest thing when we, that we do as lawyers that others might not do, you know, doctors heal us, doctors keep us healthy, but lawyers make the landscape. And I don't see that we as a profession can negate the fact that we don't live in a silo. What would you say that we as women could be doing or should be doing to encourage diversity in our profession? That's a good question. I think that one of the first things we need to do is show up. Show up, show up, show up. It doesn't mean that if you are an introvert that likes to be behind the scenes that now you have to leap way out of your comfort zone and do something. But whatever we're doing, we need to show up and we need to be strong in what we show up in. Be a big presence. Be yourself in that presence. If you are in a position of influence, and that may be as small as a referral or a recommendation to someone, or it may be as huge as you are in a firm and you now are starting to influence hiring and promotion, um, or a young person who's trying to decide what it is they want to do with their lives, lift people up. Educate them, lift up, show up. Use your influence where you have it. Don't shirk away from that authority. I think that's one of the things that was one of the hardest challenges for me was recognizing that I have resources. I can call on people. I come from a family where we tried to do a lot of self-sufficiency and the thought of, hey, Sam, hey, Julie, I need, can you connect me, was not part of how I grew up. And I, it, I think my family did it. I just, it wasn't taught that way. So starting my own practice became the real obvious one of, hey, I need to build business. Okay, I'll send you this person. I'll send you that person. Okay, what exactly are you doing? What kind of client are you looking for? We have this wealth of influence that we don't realize because as women, primarily we're inculcated not to do that. We're inculcated to nurture, but not to ask. And so I think that that may be one of the places where we have some of the greatest power and don't realize it because we don't exercise it or utilize it that way. And, of course, you have to be careful not to abuse it as well. 
what advice would you give fellow female attorneys as far as establishing a work-life balance? Because it sounds like you've had a very impressive career. And so how do you not get lost in that? Um, The first thing I did is I threw out the word balance. (laughs) (laughs) And moved for a fluid movement of not juggling, because juggling is too stressful. But things are going to always kind of shift and, and flow in and out of place. For me, it is probably four strong pieces to my life. Um, the connections that I have with my family, my spiritual walk, my personal circle that I have tried to encourage and ask to be accountable for me and my accountability. They're my accountability partners. If I'm looking harassed, if I'm looking like I'm not getting sleep, if every time I have a conversation with you it is only about work, we've got a problem. Um, I think those are really key. And then on the really on managing, I think, the professional life. I think if you can more effectively manage your professional life, then you have room for these other things. So if you walk in and you're thinking every day when you show up to work, I've got a huge task list and I have to watch my billables, and that's how you start your focus, you're going to have an off-balance day. You're going to have an off-balance life. If we're thinking about it in terms of There's tasks, there's priorities, but at the end of the day, there's still going to be stuff left because if there's not, I've worked myself out of a job, that's going to start taking away that sense of urgency about getting those things done. The other component for work balance life for me are my mentors and my professional relationships. So I really encourage everyone to have as many mentors as your heart can fill They should look like you and not look like you. They should be your age. They should be younger. They should be older. They should not be in your practice area. For heaven's sake, do not let all your your mentors be lawyers. Find an engineer. Find a banker. Find a minister. You want to bring that diversity of your own thought and grounding into your workplace. So I have mentors who are doctors who are life coaches I've got mentors who I swear to this day when I grow up I want to be like them so bar service Um, a lot of that has been because people have led me so there's this gentleman by the name of Demetrius Bivens and yes I'm calling him out to the entire (laughs) world Um, an amazing man an amazing attorney Um, he's the one who took me to my first section meeting and I walked out and he was chair and I was vice chair. Mm-hmm. Um, I went on from there to do other leadership. So I got involved in the National Bar Association. Mm-hmm. Um, went to my first meeting. Came out as a rep for Region 5, okay. which is the same as our Circuit 5, um, which put me on the Board of Governors for the National Bar Association walked into my first meeting and saw this woman who blew me away with her organizational skills, Carol Corbin Walker. She's also a past state bar president from New Jersey. I now see her at the ABA meetings and when I go to the NBA meetings. When I grow up, I tell myself I <laughs> look like her. Um, then there are the quiet mentors who huh? just kind of coach you and guide you from behind the scenes by asking you questions to keep you grounded. That's my Burt Richardson of the world. That's my Harriet Myers of the world. 
Um, there are these incredible people and being able to pick up the phone. Do, am I going crazy? Is this really happening to me? I've, I've lost my balance. I need a sounding board. Um, and they should be, if you've got a larger firm in your office, but they should be outside of your office because we also have to recognize that people are on promotion tracks and on partner tracks. And so you don't take your dirty laundry outside, but neither do you bring your worries that are going to become impediments for your ability to do your job with the people that you're working with. Um, so for me, that's how I get my balance, or at least stay upright, <laughs> remember my name, and not have a head tilt. And you've talked a lot about mentors throughout our entire time today. I mean, making the decision to leave the district attorney's office, um, other pivotal moments in your life. And you talk about making sure your mentors have a diversity amongst them that they're lawyers, but they're also engineers. Um, would you say that you would also encourage a diversity as far as age of your mentors, that some of them are your managing partners, but some of them may be your friend that's, like you said, keeping an eye on you to make sure that you don't talk about work too much? <laughs> a- absolutely. Um, for me, I, I, I really hold true to those that look like me and don't look like me. So I can honestly say that I've got mentors who are 30, 40, 50 year plus attorneys, um, or other practice areas and other you know, doctors that are older, um, some that are my parents' age, some that are older than my parents. Some of my mentors, one of my mentors, I won't give his name because he would not appreciate that because it would give him anxiety to know that he's been elevated to this position <laughs> because he probably doesn't think of himself as a mentor to me. He thinks of me as a mentor. He is now going to be a junior in college, but he knocked on my door wanting some assistance as a high school student And so I grow and I develop with him, too, just by having Mm -hmm. those conversations. So, yes, if you're a woman, you need women because you need to be able to say, oh, my God, you won't believe what the testosterone in this room did today. But at the same time, you want the male perspective. You want the brother Mm -hmm. perspective. You want the father perspective, along with the sister and the mother and the comrade at arms. Mm -hmm. So, yes, the diversity, the more the merrier. And so um, as a Shiro... What advice would you give to other women lawyers? Number one, remember to breathe. We, okay. we tend to jump head on and find ourselves oxygen deprived on so many different levels. So remember to breathe. Um, please be true to yourself, whatever that is. There is nothing like seeing an unhappy person, an unhappy female lawyer, who is struggling and looking to find her place because she is trying to either create herself into something that she sees fit into something that someone has told her. Don't mistake that for recognizing, we talked about adaptability before. Um, Again, African-American female, perfect example. There's certain things I can't hide. (laughs) I cannot walk into a room and tell someone I'm not black. I I can't do that. Mm -mm. I have many times walked in a room and watched jaws drop and people said, oh my God, I didn't realize she was black. Um, So there's some things that we cannot change. And there's some things that we have to do to overcome. As women who are going into traditionally dominated male aspects of the practice of law... You know, it doesn't mean that you have to wear flat shoes and look like the guy. 
Um, although many times I wear flat shoes because that's my comfort level. Um, but what you have to be able to do is understand that you have to think a little bit more like them. You have to kind of fit into some pieces. So do aesthetics matter? Yes, they do. Does everybody have a different judgment about what's beautiful, about what is acceptable? Yes, they do. So I hark on something that my mother has always imparted upon me. Know your audience. Know your audience. So no, I'm probably not going to have my hair braided. Probably won't have my hair kinked up if I'm going into an environment where that is largely not accepted and my job is to get in and gain acceptance to either get a client's activity, get their information, go out and advocate for them. I'm not going to go to a jury in, 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 a, in a venue or a jurisdiction where a short skirt and a low-cut blouse are not going to benefit me. I might wear a little bit more flowy blouse if I think it might, but you probably are going to dress for whatever the conservative level is of what your audience is. So do we have to make some compromises? Yes, we do. But does that mean you have to sacrifice who you are? Absolutely not. Well, thank you for being with us today. To us, you truly are a Shiro, so we appreciate anything and everything that you can tell us as fellow female attorneys. So thank you so much. For, for all me. of your wisdom and advice. And this concludes your episode of the Shiro Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please support the work we're doing by liking the Texas Young Lawyers Association's Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at Tex Young Lawyers. And tune in for our next episode on Wonder Women Wednesday.